ninth and tenth chapters of Hebrews, uh, the thing I'm claiming is that the, we're dealing with a pattern of theological understanding that can fit within uh, the goat offering, the offering of atonement. The whole section is to be understood. And the specific thing, you know, if, if we talk about the offering of atonement, it is uh, the Yahweh goat and uh, the uh, 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 other goat, the Azazel goat. But I think it's primarily the Yahweh goat that is elaborated on. Uh, and so when he talks about the once and for all offering. And so he's not denying... It. First thing to understand about Hebrews, he's never, it's not supersessionism. He's not saying, oh, this is the, you know, that we're displacing Judaism. He's already said that the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of a heifer, uh, that he's used Christ, he says that how much more in comparison the blood of Christ, uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. That is, he's saying, he's not denying a efficacy or validity but he's saying that Christ fulfills that efficacy and takes it to its fullest. So it, uh, how much more does Christ purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God in chapter 9? Uh, two things come together here in the two goats and in this section. that uh, Balthazar talks about this as the theological law of proportionate polarization. Uh, and that is, the more God intervenes, the more he elicits opposition. That is where, you know, uh, the, the he, he also talks about a, a reciprocal escalation of love and sin. Ever greater mercy arouses ever greater anger. God growing, getting closer and closer arouses greater and greater opposition. What is most holy, what is most pure will draw like a magnet what is most unholy and what is least pure. And that's sort of the function of the temple. Uh, and, you know, in Scripture, of course, the idea is that when the high priest lays his hand on the Azazel goat, he's confessing all the sins of Israel, and the world's greatest evils, murders, sexual crimes, idolatries, they're put on that goat, and these abominations then, in some way the idea is to cleanse the temple. We've talked about the temple as a kind of microcosmos. And the idea is that uh, is to get rid of these things, that they're literally endangering the cosmos, that God's good creation is in danger. So the more Yahweh draws near to Israel, the more the opposition gathers and we see this then in the two goats, but we see it ultimately in Jesus, that Christ draws near and near to the Father. <clears throat> and uh, as you know, his mission comes closer, as he's fulfilling his ministry, uh, of course the opposition to him reaches the culmination in which they would destroy the Son of God. Uh, so the more he makes himself vulnerable, the, the more hellish his opposition. The more perfect his love, intimacy with the Father, the more evils are aroused into opposition. And so it's not possible for Jesus, the great high priest, to pass through the final curtain 
uh, in this without confronting the evil. And we might say confronting that which is marked for final damnation. A lot of damnation in chapter 10 of Hebrews. We haven't come to it yet. Uh, And the Azazel goat, of course, is bound for damnation. Uh, The picture is that he's led out into a a wilderness. But, uh, so we have two things coming together. We've talked, you know, the temple, the place where we're called to communion. Israel is the, you know, called to communion with, and the idea that the whole world is drawn together. Think here of Paul, you know, that Jew and Gentile, slave and free. And that we're all drawing near to the Father through the blood. And remember, we're talking about blood in, in terms of a life dedicated to God. Talking about blood in terms of the Akedah, the, the sacrifice of Isaac, which is not a sacrifice at all, but a dedication of, of one you know, fully given over to God. And in that same movement is the idea of an ever-intensifying sin pressing down, thrown down in the place of bereft of love. And the two things come together. I think this is a kind of principle we're seeing in Scripture just played out again and again. At the height, you know, this is the very notion of why people are persecuted. Why, you know, why are Christians persecuted? In some way, the same reason that Christ was persecuted, because he drew to himself that persecution. Goodness draws the hatred out of people. Uh, Goodness and love is going to attract to it uh, the worst. And so this is the very idea in the suffering that we undergo as Christians. um, That... Uh, you should not be surprised, Jesus tells his disciples, that you su- you'll suffer just as I have suffered. The way that Balthasar puts it, he says, fundamentally, Christ goes in two opposite directions, with the thief on his right toward paradise and with the one on his left in order to fetch him into deep hell. The contradiction is that he is at once the furthest from hell and as sin bearer the closest to it. That being this dead dead man, he has lost his word character, hence the silence, and yet at the same time is also the Father's loudest and clearest message to the world. And so I think that's when we're confronted with the two goats, we're confronted with two images. And in some way we have to bring these two images together with for a right understanding. If we just fuse them, and this is what has happened in you know, doctrines of penal substitution and people's reading of the New Testament, they just imagine that we're talking about the Azazel goat, and they forget the Yahweh goat. Most of the passages in, in the New Testament are talking about the Yahweh goat and the effect of the Yahweh goat. Um, and there are passages that do talk about the Azazel goat, but to fuse them is to, in, in reality, confuse what's taking place in the death of Christ. So we've already talked about the way sins and impurities are counteracted. We have the language in Hebrews and elsewhere that it's a ritual detergent. That is, that there's a cleansing, there's a purging of sins. The sacred spaces in the temple, you know, we've just gone through nine 
he's talking about the sprinkling of the blood and the picture is, you know, the high priest flicks his hand and the blood, uh, that sacramentally what is being portrayed is a reduplication of what Abraham and Isaac went through. And, of course, Abraham and Isaac is, is a pointer toward Christ. Uh, that the life of Isaac is the very life of the offerer, who is in the same, you know, that Christ is in the line of Isaac. And so in presenting the life of Isaac, the idea is the offerer is presenting his own life. And the Akedah overcomes sin and death in this manner. The cross of Christ overcomes sin and death in this manner in that it is defeating, you know, sin in that it is redirecting uh, our life, no longer oriented to death, but, uh, you know, freely assuming death as Christ did, there is a defeat of death, no longer a death resistance. So through, we've talked about that the inner, the Holy of Holies, is made unclean by death. Death and sin are linked, and the way that death is overcome, Christ defeats death, on the cross and with the resurrection. And so he's driving out chaos. And so there is this uh, idea of a complete vulnerability. And, you know, in this, uh, there is the picture then of love of the beloved son who dies on our behalf and opened up the idea uh, of uh, a community of love. And so why, the question is, why are there two goats rather than just one? Let me just go back to Leviticus where it describes the two goats. Aaron shall bring forward his own bull of purification there, and then offering to effect purgation for himself and for his household, he shall take the two he-goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The tradition tells us, we get this later, that the two goats are identical. They cannot, you cannot tell them apart. The goat that is the Azazel goat that will be cast into the wilderness, they tie a thread around it, and they say it was a scarlet thread, just to mark which goat it is. And then there's a casting of lots uh, in which the each goat is assigned, uh, each name associated with a place. One is called... You know, the first goat, the Yahweh goat, is called to the center of the Holy of Holies. And the other, then, will be sent out into the wilderness. And so they're going to go in opposite directions, even though they're identical. And, of course, the idea here is that Christ is going to do these opposite things. Um, The way that the Mishnah puts it, the religious requirement concerning them is that the two of them will be equivalent in appearance, height, and value. That the goat should look alike is also tested. Uh, Barnabas says, the goat shall be beautiful and similar, or similar, beautiful, and equal. Uh, So the goat for the Lord, uh, the idea is here's the work of purgation, here is the sacrificial goat. The Azazel goat is never is not a sacrificial goat. It's left standing at the out, outside of the tabernacle, and it uh, after it receives, you know, until we come to that, until Aaron goes in with the sacrifice and the blood manipulation of the first goat, the other the Azazel goat is momentarily forgotten, and everything is about the 
the purgation, the, the cleansing. And then he comes out and he prays over this Azazel goat uh, and you know confesses the sin of, of Israel. Uh, so uh, I thought I had the uh, confession here. But Moriah, you know, the idea of all of this is that it's picturing. If we think of Moriah, the place that Isaac is uh, not sacrificed, and the temple mount, some think, is on Moriah, the word that is named Yahweh Yireh, the Lord is seen, and the Lord will provide. And so it is God who provides the right response to the encroaching death on his holy mountain, his holy temple. And it is God then who provides the antidote. So it is God who gives the blood, which is life. It is he who breathed life, he uh, brought the stirrings of life. You know, this is the picture of Abraham and uh, Sarah, that he brought life or birth uh, out of nothing. And blood is the sacrament, through which Israel draws near a kind of open heart to open heart, and it is this form that overcomes destruction, that overcomes death, that overcomes sin. Uh, and so in the New Testament, I originally was going to do this. We could go through. There's, all, there's not that many verses, but there's about four or five verses you could go through that are picturing the work of the Yahweh goat. They are like the verse I read earlier from Corinthians, talking about the community of the saved, new creation, unity, purging of sin. All of those picture then the work of the Yahweh goat. Uh, It's a positive movement of love between the Father and Son, drawn together in the Spirit to bring whole world salvation and harmony. Remember, that's the microcosmos work of the temple. There is no emphasis in the Yahweh goat texts of the New Testament on death. Now there are other texts that are going to compare Christ's death to the Azazel goat, but they're functioning in a very different way. The Yahweh goat texts focus on new creation, reconciliation, new peace, drawing the whole world together in freedom to God's glory. Uh, You know, this is the New Jerusalem, the the beauty of Zion, and it's pictured then in you know the self-giving sacrifice, the kenotic love of Christ. So the blood purges impurities; it removes sins, and only the deliberate sins. And this was true of the two goats, stubbornly main independent, and only they need to be driven away. Uh, so when it comes to intentional sin, uh, something has to be generated that is even, this is the difficult thing. And so a severe wound in the flesh may heal, but even a- ever after a scar remains. So, so two with these rebellions against God, uh, when it comes to a man or a woman who hears God's word, he says, I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. And if they freely choose death, the picture, and and this is the the question in all of this, you know, what is the reality of this evil? Even the Azazel goat is named after a demon, after the demonic. Uh, Most people think that, uh, in fact, it's kind of, you know, 
the idea of an actually existing demonic force is is not connected necessarily, but the idea of this curse or this evil. And so the the word uh, azazel, uh, most popular is in uh, J- Jacob Milgram was a Jewish scholar, and he has gone back and talked about the Azazel goat and he says that it was uh, dissipated of any kind of uh, demonic but it marked the wasteland beyond Azazel we're going to it's going to come to equate be equated with hell Uh, the wilderness that the goat is sent into and the hellish picture in the New Testament so Azazel, he says, is the name of a demon who has been eviscerated of his erstwhile demonic powers. And after the high priest has used the lifeblood of the Yahweh goat to purge the sanctuary of impurities, and he releases the sins for removal, then they turn to the Yahweh goat. And so then Aaron will pray. He leans both hands on the head of the live goat, and he confesses the idea he's transferring the sins. And there's a whole discussion here in the Old Testament that's connected with this. You know, the sins almost to be a th- they seem to be a thing of a thing that you can load on this goat, and the goat can carry them off. Uh, later, you know, in the Second Temple, sin will we then we get into the idea of sin as a debt or something that uh, is carried over. But the idea is that the, the Azazel goat carries the sins into the wilderness or the sins in some way are transferred to him. Uh, and so Aaron confesses cruelly all the cruelty, violence, pride, lust, arrogance, hatred. Um, and the idea is that with both hands, Aaron presses his weight on the Azazel goat's head and they are put upon, the, you know, the evils of the nation are put on uh, the goat. And then he's driven into Midbar or Erez Gezira. Uh, Midbar is usually uh, described as wilderness, desert, the place that is the polar opposite of holiness. So the temple is, a, if the temple is a microcosmos, there is this sense that... Uh, you know, where the temple is a life-sustaining order, this is the polar opposite of life. It would be unlife or death. Erez Gazira is an inaccessible region, a land cut off. Uh, it's a place completely distinct from both Eden, Mount Zion, the temple, and it is the Azazel goat, uh, his it's further pictured as that he descends into a pit uh, that, of the Erez Gezira, that, it, you, that once in this pit he can't get out. The idea is that the sins are destroyed. They're driven out of any place of habitation. They're gotten rid of. That may be the, the main point here. Um, and so the, the evil was banished to its place of origin uh, and uh, it, so that it could do no more harm. The main point here, the Azalza goat's not the sacrifice. Uh, the, he is, 
instead of being an offering or a substitute, he is the vehicle to dispatch Israel's impurities into the netherworld. And so what's happening with Christ on the cross, uh, the cleansing, the sacrificial aspect of the cross, is of course linked to the Yahweh goat. But there's also a real world deliverance or ridding the world of sin with Christ that is there is a transfer uh, that uh, in Leviticus the removal of sin you know is first of all you have the ritual detergent uh, which is the lifeblood that replaces and releases the sin from the sanctuary so you have the cleansing the and then the cleansing all of the sins are gathered together and then put on the goat making it possible for them to be borne away that is the sacrificial element has to precede uh the getting rid the 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 second movement is dependent upon the first i think both things are there are here in our text in hebrews and i'll i'll stop here very shortly that christ has been offered once for all in order to bear the sins of many um in 9:27 He's been offered once to bear, Christ has been offered once for all in order to bear away the sins, is the, is the idea. And so this seems, there seems to be two, both goats here in Hebrews. That's why Hebrews is, you know, it is the most Hebraic, and it is the most uh, appealing then to this understanding. Uh, I won't work all this out tonight other than to say this is the context in which we need to understand the death of Christ is in and through the two-goat theology. So what we don't want to do is confuse the sacrifice of Christ with the Azazel goat. And we don't want to confuse, in other words, in all of this, the idea of death, of destruction. That's not on the uh, Yahweh goat, that's on the Azazel goat. It's there. But the idea is that Christ gets rid of it. Maybe I'll stop there. If you if you go into you know kind of popular theology, somebody like uh, oh who is it? Uh, oh John Stott argues that uh, that he argues specifically that the two goats are one. That's a fairly common argument for people who defend defend penal substitution. All right, any comment, question on a very poor and short introduction? Where, where do we, where's the goat passage in the Old Testament? The, uh, in Leviticus, let's see, let me get it here. Leviticus 16.22. Uh, and... The thing to note in all of this is that there seems to be two movements. We talked about this with the temple. There's the Deuteronomistic writings and then the priestly writings. You know, that in the Deuteronomistic writings, the picture is uh, the two temples, the idea of the microcosmos and the heavenly mirror, that 
you get one in emphasized in each. And I think the same, we have to bring that understanding to this understanding to understand that what's happening with the two goats is a cosmic cleansing. But it's a cosmic cleansing that makes sense. In other words, what the only thing that's going to make sense of this is to bring the two notions of the temple together. Uh, that the heaven is coming to earth. God's presence is going to make itself known on earth. But the only way it's going to make itself known, or make, the way God is going to make himself known, is through the defeat of sin, death, and evil. Uh, and so there, there is this tension in the Old Testament. This you often get in you know, a kind of higher critical understanding that the priestly writing and the Deuteronomistic writing. But the idea is we need both. We need that understanding. Anyway, I, so the, the, uh, yeah, the details are there in Leviticus, and I didn't do all the details, but the writer of Hebrews is actually giving us a spatial understanding in chapter 9. You know, he goes through in the first section, in the first room where the lampstand, the table. And then in chapter 10, it's like he's taking us into the reality. He says the, sh the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. He's saying that we're now with the reality. and so. But he's directly building the reality. That is, we could say that the uh, theology of Yom Kippur is the theology through which we're going to understand the death of Christ. If we miss Yom Kippur, if we miss the, what's happening in the Old Testament, especially in this book, we're not going to understand in the full significance of the work of Christ. All right, let's let's go back and uh, read. Uh, Miguel, you want to read verse eight? Yeah. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Does God? You know, in, in, in a sense, the Levitical laws are themselves simply, you know, this is Paul's argument about the law itself, inclusive of the, the temple and all of it that it does. It is a marker of something else. What does it mark? Well, Paul argues that it's the intermediator between Abraham and Christ. And we could say the same thing about the blood of bulls and goats. Well, the Abraham is the marker of the self-offering, Abraham and Isaac, that is fulfilled in Christ in the blood of bulls and goats then is simply the mediator between those two things. So God, you know, this is the prophets, and especially the minor prophets, that God does not desire the blood of bulls and goats. Solomon, when he builds the temple, says, you know, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. Um, was there a degree of efficacy? Well, in as much as it pointed backward to Abraham and forward to Christ. And then verse 9, Faith. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first to establish the second. 
uh, what is the thing that God wants in place of the blood of bulls and goats? Somebody to obey him, right? Obedience. A kenotic self-giving. Here am I. I have come to do your will. As we've said before, a body you prepared for me. Uh, with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. But I have come to do your will, O God. And so Christ, he's saying this is fulfilled in, in Christ. Uh, so, and he set aside the first to establish the second. And then verse 10, David. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the the part of the, the severe warning that comes with this is that, you know, think of the desecrating the temple. You you know, that would to in right before the Levitical rules are given, Nadab and Abihu are struck dead. And so a lot of the, the temple law is flowing out of well they did it wrong. And here's the way to do it. And of course the warning here is that uh, we've been we've received the real purging, the real purging of sin, the real driving out of sin. I mean, in the end, this is I think what he's describing is the the heavenly temple is in the church, and that we are the, that temple. He's just said that, uh, and so. Uh, this is the holy place. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of Christ and therefore are to be like the holy place in the temple. And then uh, verse 11, Jamie. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Uh, go ahead and read another one. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting... Oh, wait, do you want me to finish the sentence? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So the, the picture is uh, that he sits down, which the, the high priest, you know, you'd never go in and sit down in the temple because it was a momentary thing and it was going to pass quickly. You've heard the, the idea, the legend maybe, we don't know if it's true, that they would, since Nadab and Abihu were struck dead, they uh, tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that if he got struck dead, nobody would have to go in and get him. They could just drag him out. Uh, but the idea is, no, this high priest is staying. Uh, the, the, the sacrifice, the, the cleansing has been made. All of this, I mean, the, the temple, the temple imagery, there's nothing, you know, what we're getting here, I hope you're, you're saying there is a sacramental element to it. But I think we can explain the sacramental element, that is, the, 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 what's happening with the cleansing, is in some, at some level, and I don't mean to make it completely comprehensible, but we can begin to comprehend that Christ has defeated sin and death in a real world fashion and enabled us then to live out lives of forgiveness 
And then, Alec, you want to read uh, the next one? Verse 15? Yeah. Okay. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, I'll, I'll read. This. Go ahead, just finish it up. Okay. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Continue. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts will remember more, no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Which is a good thing, because there need to be no more sacrifice for sin. Uh, and he's going to immediately say, so we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Uh, let us draw near. We can draw near to God and we can draw near to one, one another that sin, death, alienation have been overcome. But then this will also come with a warning. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. That is that if you trod underfoot the sacrifice of Christ, there is no, you know, if we deliberately keep on sinning, uh, there is no sacrifice for sins that is left. So, as fearful as the temple sacrifices were made, the writer is saying, yes, and this is a greater thing. So again, the image that I begin with, where great love and you know the God is to be found, there is also then, it's also going to draw evil to it. The way that we could picture this in the end is that... Uh, there is a complete destruction. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Where, what could, can God possibly forget? He can only forget, in other words, in some way these things are undone. And I think that in the end that's the work of the Azazel. He removes these things as far from God as possible. They are undone. They're in the pit. They're in hell itself. And hell, in this instance, is the place in which uh, all residue of sin 